welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Prince. And before I begin today's episode, I'd like to wish all of our listeners a happy new year on behalf of our whole team. I'm excited to kick off the new year with a conversation with today's guest, Matt Watson. Matt is the founder and CEO of Origin, a fintech company focused on making financial advice approachable, accessible, and affordable for everyone. In today's wide-ranging episode, we discuss Matt's background, including his journey from traditional finance to entrepreneurship, and his perspective on the importance of passion and a deep understanding of customer needs in building a successful business. We cover Origin's mission and product offering in mass market wealth management, as well as the need for a balanced approach between breadth and depth of services for a user-friendly experience. Matt sheds light on the practical aspects of Origin's M&A strategy, emphasizing its role in expanding product offerings and driving growth, exemplified by its recent acquisition of the online estate planning platform, MyAdvocate. Matt also shares practical insights into the challenges and opportunities of entering the direct-to-consumer market and discusses his outlook for 2024. Hey, Matt. Welcome to the Warden Fintech Podcast. Where are you calling hey, in from today? Trevor, thanks for having me. I'm uh, calling in from uh, Hingham, Mass., just south of Boston. Gotcha. Are you there full-time? Yeah, full-time. I've uh, been here about a year and a half. My uh, my wife and I, we were in grew up on the East Coast, then uh, after school moved out to the West Coast, so we're in San Francisco uh, doing the tech thing for about a decade, and then moved back closer to family about a year and a half ago. Gotcha, gotcha. And, and Origins offices are based out of Boston, is that correct? We're headquartered in Boston, but we're a remote company. So we have folks all over the place. We do. We started the business in San Francisco, so we have a concentration of folks there. And then my uh, my co-founder is actually Brazilian. Um, he's you know was our CTO, and uh, so we've got a good presence in in Sao Paulo, Brazil as well. Gotcha. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit more about Origin in a little bit, but maybe we can start just a little bit about yourself um, for our listeners who who aren't familiar with your background. Can you please provide a high level overview of your career, of your career up to this point? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I went to Johns Hopkins for my undergrad and after school went into traditional finance. So I joined Citigroup uh, right out of school. They have you know a great program in, in capital markets. So I joined that and I worked in uh, FX for uh, a year or so uh, on their corporate sales desk. And then I moved into trading high yield bonds, where I, which I did for a couple of years as well. Uh, after my time at City, or really during my time at City, I got really excited about uh, technology and bringing new technologies into financial markets. So uh, you know, build up the courage to to leave the corporate world. Um, you know, lucky, luckily, I was young enough and naive enough to do it at the time. But uh, I quit my job in New York and I moved out to San Francisco and got to work trying to to build um, you know, companies. And uh, looking back on it, you know, really uh, amazed that uh, you know how little I knew at the time. But you know, I think the only way to to learn um, or the best way to learn is by doing. So, um, you know, kind of cut my teeth building my own company in the insurance space, which I'm sure I'll tell you a bit more about. And then, uh, after we sold that business, moved on to build, um, origin, which is a mass market wealth management, uh, platform. Matt, I guess it'd be helpful for you to walk us through your decision to go from what you could call a more traditional finance role to, to co-founding Indio. I guess what what went through your mind as you were making that decision, and any advice um, for for folks making similar decisions uh, in the near future? Here? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I started my career working in you know traditional finance at, at Citigroup out of school. You know, learned a tremendous amount in that initial corporate role that I think is you know really served me well as an entrepreneur. Uh, but it was kind of an itch that I had internally that just kept coming back to me was this idea of being able to. Go out on your own, take a bet on yourself, and start a business. And um, 
ultimately, you know, at that time, Silicon Valley was kind of moving into the uh, to the mainstream kind of realm at that point in time. It was something I was learning more and more about. And as I did, you know, I, I just couldn't stop thinking about what a tremendous opportunity it would be to go out and really, you know, build something of my own. And th- and the thing that I took away at that time was that no matter what you do with a business, um, especially earlier in your career, you're going to learn so much on that journey that it's worth the bet. So the expected value of you know moving in from a corporate role into a startup, starting that business, building a product, talking to customers, and bringing that into market will accelerate your career, whether that business works out on a standalone basis or ultimately if you decide, I want to move back into a corporate role. So that was the thinking for me that gave me the confidence and the comfort to move away from a corporate role and, and you know start on my own. Going through it, you know, it's definitely uh, a journey. You know, there's going to be a lot of ups, a lot of downs. I think that you know the best entrepreneurs are the ones who can you know understand that it's probably like eighty percent downs, like you know ten percent neutral, ten percent ups. But the ups and the winning is you know it makes it all worth it. And I think the journey makes it all worth it as well. So. Um, you know, harder than I'd imagined when I started, but once you kind of settle into the routine of, you know, developing that product, building the team, getting into market, learning, and then delivering a solution, uh, it's been the most rewarding thing that I've done professionally. And it's, you know, something I, I think I'll continue to do for the rest of my career. Gotcha. Yeah. That's helpful. Kind of taking that long-term view, even if there's some, some bumpy roads ahead, or it's a bit of a scenic route, it can definitely have a much bigger long-term impact than any sort of short-term hurdles that you might come across. So that's that's helpful to hear. I guess any words of wisdom or I guess uh, pieces of advice that you would wish you had heard prior to making that leap? I know you mentioned it. It's a lot more challenging than the press makes it out to be, but but any other kind of uh, key insights or, or advice that you give to people make, thinking of making a similar pivot, especially in, in today's market where there's a little bit more volatility? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're starting a company, I would I would almost just completely ignore the macro. If you start a business, it's going to take years for it to to come together and for it to work. So the likelihood that the macro like negatively impacts the value of your company uh, is is pretty low, in my opinion. If if the business is going to work anyways, it's probably not going to win or lose due to the macro. Um, you know, right now what you're seeing is is this big kind of cycle where obviously when when markets are doing well. Uh, Revenue multiples on speculative, uh, you know, financial instruments or on speculative companies obviously expand, and you've seen a complete collapse of the premium on uh, speculative businesses to more traditional businesses, and that's driving a lot of entrepreneurs into more traditional businesses right now. You, know, you hear about a lot about like PE rollups and those types of things, and that can make sense due to the fact that the delta between a dollar generated in software and a dollar generated in a traditional business, and the reward for doing that has, has completely collapsed. Um, I would like completely throw that to the wind. I don't think that that's you know great. I really think that it's important to play a game that's really interesting to you. Um, for my own personal experience, uh, you know, speaking you know uh, sample size of one, when I'm motivated and excited by an idea that you know I think about in the shower that gets me out of bed in the morning, I know that my work output is just 10x greater than something that I'm doing to earn a dollar or you know because I think that I tend to it. And that was, um, you know, that would be my single biggest piece of advice. Find a game or business that you love and you will, because you love it, it will be easy. And when it's easy, you, you will be much more successful. And so forget the macro, forget multiples, forget all that stuff. Just find a business that's interesting to you and pursue that. Gotcha. And I guess what, what stuck out to you about, uh, 
kind of Indio's mission and, and what drove you to, to, to focus in on kind of Indio's core market um, in particular? Yeah, well, I think it kind of, you know, didn't take my own advice when I started that business. It's kind of something that I learned along the way. I think with Indio, you know, we developed, it's a vertical SaaS. It was a vertical SaaS platform. It still is used today um, by, you know, huge, huge companies. But, you know, it was a business that made a lot of sense. I think um, fundamentally we knew we could do something there. I think that even in that business, because it wasn't something that we were so, so passionate about, it becomes really kind of, you know, difficult to say, I want to do this for 10 years. And, you know, we ended up having a really great outcome with that business. We returned, you know, 100x uh, return to our initial investors. Um, but I think that to get the thousand x return to have, you know, uh, the really generational businesses, it has to be something that you get up in the morning and and really, really think about, eat, breathe, connect with your with your end user and are passionate about solving that problem for them. Um, and I think that that's probably the single most critical component to, you know, if you're investing in companies or, or thinking about building your own, like making sure that that customer obsession is really clicking is is critical. Gotcha. And then Indio sold in 2018. Is that correct? That's right. I guess, how, can you touch briefly on how you approached that process, kind of how you thought about that exit in the the grand scheme of kind of that longer term view and, and the, the upside potential of that business? I think you touched on a little bit of the personal factors, but I guess any any of the other um, you know aspects that drove that sale and, and any advice for, for firms kind of approaching similar um, strategic decisions themselves. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it always comes down to obviously, you know, the founder and I think founders always have asymmetric information when it comes to their own business. There's a feel component to, you know, okay, we're valued at X. What would it take to be valued at Y? And I think you just know in your gut, you know, what it would take. And if you're up for that next leg of the journey, I think we're seeing this right now and we'll continue to see it for the next, you know, who knows how long until markets kind of clear out a little bit, maybe like 12 to 24 months. We're in the middle of the most hotly anticipated recession in history that you know hasn't come yet. So I think it's put a lot of traditional business movement on hold. Um, but I think the you know the, my learning in the Indio experiences where businesses are bought not sold. It's really tough to go and you can't knock on the door of a corporate and say, hey, like you should buy our business. And and you know if you do that, if you've hired a banker to do that. And maybe you'll be successful, but ultimately, the, what what will happen is the revenue multiple or the EBITDA multiple in the business is going to be significantly compressed, like maybe like eighty percent compression on what you would get if you can get a buyer excited about your product. You know, the strategy that we took at Indio is a vertical SaaS platform for commercial insurance agents. So there's really two big players in that space. They've got you know these huge, huge software platforms that operate these insurance agencies, and we knew that we could not build a horizontal compound product in that space quickly enough with the capital that we could raise. So we said, all right, let's go build like one really small piece of this really, really well. And we were able to get into 40 of the largest two, uh, excuse me, 40 of the largest hundred insurance agencies in the country and inside of 24 months. And that allowed us to then paint this picture to the players in the space that was like, great, like we've landed in your domain, which is you know not not happening regularly. We're now going to go raise the capital to build backwards, and I think that as that became clear, you know the two bigger players in our space said, okay, this could be a really interesting you know bolt on to what we're doing today, and, and you know that that ended in a great result for us. Gotcha. I guess turning to to origin um, for our listeners who who aren't familiar, can you give a, a brief review of 
of your firm's product offering and then describe your decision to, to start the company in, in 2019. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what uh, this company was really kind of taking my own advice on building something that you're really excited about and passionate about. You know, I started my career in financial services, working at Citigroup in, in capital markets. Um, so well-versed in kind of just, you know, both the corporate side of that, uh, and also the personal finance side. And one thing that I found was that the markets really, you know, split into, into third. So you've got traditional wealth management at the high end of the market, starting maybe at a half a million or a million dollars of liquid assets. Got to be one of the most competitive markets out there, right? You know, there's so many people who are interested in managing your money once you get to, to that, uh, wealth level, um, on the low end of the market, you have, you know, just a litany. You've got hundreds of startups that are focused on solving problems for the low end of the market through a variety of banking products, lending products, earned wage access products. There hasn't been a ton of innovation in the middle. And that was something that really struck me as as interesting. Um, and I and I think it's because that middle tier wants the same thing as what the top tier wants. You've got people who are good who are generally out of college, they're, they're starting to earn money, they're accumulating assets, they don't have them yet. Um, but unfortunately, the traditional business models that exist where you've got a human providing that service are too expensive to provide to the middle segment uh, from, from a business model perspective. And so we, we said is, let's take a second look at that and see if we can deliver that white glove wealth management solution that exists at the height of the market and build a business that brings that down into the mass market, mass affluent segment. And today what exists there is just tremendous fragmentation. And so what our business is doing, what we're doing at Origin, is aggregating all of the core financial services that you would need at that mass market, mass affluent level, bringing them into a single platform to deliver you know, one place where you can do all things money and replicate that high-end wealth management experience at a much lower income level. Gotcha. And, and Origin started selling its services as an employee benefit. Is that correct? So I guess, could you elaborate on on your decision to enter the market in that space as opposed to maybe other potential paths that you guys evaluated? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when you look at this problem and you look at where it starts, it starts when you receive your paycheck and your benefits. So wealth in, you know, for, for, uh, for corporate Americans starts at their paycheck. Uh, you know, there's no trust funds, there's huge amounts of capital sitting around for this group. And so when they re- receive that paycheck, when they receive their benefits, their 401k, their tax advantage accounts, or HSA, their FSA, their maybe equity compensation through their employee uh, stock purchase program, that is where decisions need to start happening. Uh, so we said, well, why don't we go and help companies figure this out for their employees? You know, employees are coming in to, to the workplace, they're receiving, you know, their paycheck, let's say it's $100, they're getting another $30 outside of that in the form of benefits, you know, through all the items that I just mentioned that most folks have no idea where to even start. And if we can help combine that at work financial picture with the things that are traditionally out of work, you know, uh, credit score improvement, budgeting, tracking, investing, tax filing, estate planning, you've really created this amazing destination for an individual to go and maximize every dollar that they're bringing in. There's another reason, which is that businesses, business owners are heavily incentivized to solve this problem. So financial stress is the largest source of stress for adults in the United States. Uh, It's more than job, health, and relationship stress combined. So when you can solve this problem for people, they're much less likely to have mental health issues. Uh, They're much less likely to leave companies. And so businesses were invested in trying to figure this out. And so we said, great, you know, we, we see this kind of user problem, which is this issue where 
people who are you know corporate employees have no idea what to do with their money and that's not being solved in the direct consumer space let's package this up and then go work with employers who are invested in solving this problem so that we can really kill two birds with one stone one is that acquisition challenge that you know is generally very difficult in direct consumer finances uh, and then two is uh, you know kind of getting in front of that user in a way that uh, is endorsed by an employer uh, you know right out of the gates and you've discussed Origins, I guess, goal to be kind of a holistic solution, so it's not someone having to go find services piecemeal. I guess, how do you balance having a breadth of services that people will need with the depth of service that that people expect? Like you said, they're looking for that you know next level of service, not just a commoditized product. So, I guess, how do you how do you guys ban- balance that that dichotomy? Probably the hardest product challenge that we have in our business, and we've got we've definitely gotten it wrong at times where we've gone too broad too soon. And that's resulted in a less than an ideal consumer experience uh, in certain products. And so I think that that's been a product learning that I've had as we've built this company is really kind of pulling the line on um, not not so much minimally viable. I don't think minimally viable works anymore because consumer expectations have increased so much. You have to have a minimal minimal lovable product uh, and really kind of shifting your your frame of reference from something that like moves moves the ball from A to B to something that actually makes that um, beautiful and intuitive uh, in a way that a consumer has come to expect. So I think like the MVP concept obviously was really big, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And I think in the principles of that are very, very sound. But I think the consumer expectation has shifted over the last 10 years with the proliferation of amazing direct consumer applications. And so people who are building either in the enterprise or consumer space can't build minimally viable. They do have to build minimally lovable. Um, and so now what that means is you're, de- you're just de-scoping, right? So you're building every feature that you build has to be a, has to be very, very strong, but maybe you're not going to have every single feature out there. Um, you know, maybe, you know, when you look at, let's say like, you know, Trump's farm, like you can invest with them. They have, you know, a tremendous number of great products. For our user that we're going after, we're building for someone who, you know, is not going to be, you know, a DIY setting up their own option strategy, setting up their own, you know, risk parity strategies. They're coming in, they know they should invest, they want to put some money to work. They probably don't know what they want to do. They probably also don't even want to think about it. They just want to do it and kind of move on. So how do you build a product for them that's beautiful, intuitive, and amazing? And that's how we de-scope. And you can do that very quickly as opposed to building these huge, huge broad products. In other instances, we're buying companies. So if we know that you know there's a product that we that we really want to do well, you know we're looking at businesses that have done a really great job of that, that are excited about joining forces with us to go and deliver that into either a much larger customer base or kind of get out the door at scale. And that's something that we've done twice now that has allowed us to get to market much more quickly with a much deeper product than we could build um, on our own. So I'd say it's a combination of those two strategies. So I guess the the acquisitions I saw were um, your acquisition of Finney, and then I guess most recently the estate planning startup My Advocate. I guess could you maybe elaborate on your M and A strategy in a little bit more detail, maybe broadly, and then in the context of the My Advocate acquisition? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for us, you know, Parker Conrad, who's the CEO at Rippling, has really uh, pioneered uh, this concept of a compound startup. Um, it's something that is kind of cuts against the grain of traditional startup wisdom, predominantly for the reason that we talked about going too broad too soon. 
um, you know, most investors will say, no, 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 you need to go very, very deep in one vertical uh, and win that vertical. And like, that's how you build a great business. And obviously that has happened many, many, many times and it's, it's still a great strategy. I think as the cost to build software has come down, and if you're operating in an industry where products are largely commoditized, compound startups can make a lot of sense because you can build these products quite quickly where users are willing to move if you can consolidate that user experience and bring them lower cost. And like if you look at Rippling, that's what they do. They have a huge number of products. I wouldn't argue that any of their products are the best in their respective categories, but they're, they're, they're strong enough, of course. And they consolidate them so that there's huge user advantage to having the simplification of running HR payroll benefits uh, provisioning out of one platform, and they do it at a lower cost. And obviously, that's working very, very well for them. That's the same exact playbook that we're running at Origin, saying, okay, you know, many of these tools are commoditized. Is the user inertia so great and, and so loyal to any of these individual products that they won't switch for convenience and price? We think the answer is, is, is no. So our product is strengthened by bringing in more services at a lower price point. Uh, and the price point gets more and more attractive as we bundle more of them into a single platform. And that that multi-product approach hasn't really been executed on in the personal finance space, you know, at all. Um, and so that that's what we're we're working towards. In some instances, we're building the products. Um, so an example of that is our own investment management platform. You know, we looked at that. We wanted to build it in a specific way. We think where there's a specific set of features that get us to that really great experience very quickly. So. We've taken it upon ourselves to, to build that product. In other products where we don't have as much product expertise in-house and there are great opportunities to team up with companies, we've made the decision to acquire. So that was my advocate. That's an example of a business that is operating in the digital estate planning uh, domain. You know, The product that they put together was incredibly robust and detailed uh, in terms of the sophistication of the um, you know, documents that they were able to create much more so than, you know, the competitors that exist in the landscape today. Um, you know, we experienced, you know, got to know the founders of that business and ultimately made a decision to, to team up with them. I'd say a third leg of the stool that allows us to, you know, continue to expand, uh, you know, the product sheet more quickly is that the infrastructure players in the fintech space, you know, have been well-funded and have created really strong products. So those are businesses that can power, you know, tax solutions or investment management solutions or even banking solutions, which we don't do today. Uh, but that allows you to kind of accelerate this compound business, compound product business that we're executing on. In terms of the M&A strategy, I think for us, um, you know, it, it, we're, we've been opportunistic in some senses where, you know, we obviously have a roadmap. And if there's something on the roadmap that's called within the next 12 to 18 months, and we see a product that, you know, could be a nice addition to what we're doing that would bring that timeline forward. We've been aggressive about about trying to bring those those products into the fold sooner rather than later, um, and so you know we continue to look at you know adjacencies to what we're doing today. I think one that we're excited about is insurance, personal insurance, um, you know, both on the property and casualty side, but also on the life side. Um, it, you know, we'd like to add there, you know, at some point over the next twelve months to really round out our offering to be PFM, so like a mint product, investment management, so a wealth uh, a wealth front betterment type product taxes, which we have now, so you'd be able to file taxes with us, estate planning, of course, and then insurance. And when you round those things together, you really have that complete wealth solution outside of core banking, which we think is you know by far the most commoditized product in the space. So very long-winded answer, but that's how we think about building, buying, partnering uh, at Origin. No, definitely appreciate that. And you you 
read my mind with my next question about kind of the, the areas that you guys are focused on next. So, so appreciate that context there. I guess, um, like we discussed, you started as kind of an employee, employee benefit, um, driven, uh, product, I guess you launched your direct to consumer offering in November of 2023. Can you let us in on your decision to, you know, enter into, I guess the direct to consumer market, um, and any kind of, uh, I guess insights as to to why you decided to to make that move um, and and what kind of the key drivers were there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we launched it on November second, uh, really fortuitous timing with Mint uh, announcing that they're sunsetting or Intuit sunsetting Mint. So we saw a big influx of people moving away from Mint into our D 2 C product right after it launched, which was, which was fantastic. Um, you know, core reasoning: we've operated in a B two B and B two B two C construct now for the life of the company. One thing that we heard repeatedly from users who were at the businesses that we were surfing is, one, I haven't heard of this product. So, you know, I, I haven't heard of my friends or family using it. So that was creating some sort of you know, potential hesitation or blocker from engaging with us as an employee benefit. And I think what was really behind that question, what we were hearing from other users was, well, if I leave my company, what happens to this relationship in this product? I don't want to load all of my accounts. I don't want to start filing my taxes or investing through this. If when I leave, I'm going to lose access, or I don't even know what I would pay if if I do leave the company. Our generation, I think, you know, this is not a novel thing. People change jobs, you know, frequently in the tech world. It's it's you know right around every 20 to 22 months, so it's really really frequent. So solving that problem of what happens if I leave was a really really important one um, to to increase top of funnel, and people were coming into that to that you know engagement. Um, Secondly, you know, when we go to employers, one thing that we've seen work really well for other players in our space is that when they have a consumer brand, employers get really excited about offering it to their employees. So um, like one example of this is, is like Calm or Headspace Health. Those are businesses that have, have really great direct consumer uh, brands in the, in the mental health space, in the meditation space. They then brought that into the employer realm. And because their employees had known about this or maybe we're paying for these products on their own, employers were really excited about offering that as a benefit, as were other partners in the space, like uh, group insurance carriers or health insurance carriers. And so that was a really good way of increasing, <coughs> excuse me, brand awareness for us uh, to really grease the wheels for our B2B strategy as well. And then of course, we think there's a really big business to be built in the direct consumer space. Uh, you know, we recognize that our product is at a place where we thought it was, you know, a great, uh, you know, is a great user experience. And we wanted to bring this into uh, you know, into availability and give access to everybody. Uh, and so we thought, you know, why not put a shingle up and get this out into the world and and see, you know, direct consumer co- direct consumer users engage with us. I guess whenever one talks about financial services being offered to to individual consumers, additional regulatory scrutiny starts to come into play, and 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 definitely is an additional factor. I guess how has Origin thought about uh, balancing that, especially in the context of broadening your product set? And the additional scrutiny that could come there um, with kind of cross-selling of products and that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, we we you know lean on council heavily for that. Um, you know, while we've been distributed through employers, and maybe even more so, you know, from day one, big companies aren't going to let you roll your product out to their employees if you're not you know taking data security regulatory. Uh, you know, operating on, you know, in accordance with each jurisdiction that, that you're operating in, you know, for each of the products that we offer. Um, so when you go through the contracting process with a Fortune 500 business, you know, they have a team of people whose job is to make sure that you're compliant and, you know, really, uh, you know, 
put you through the ringer to make sure that that is all above above board. So uh, moving into the direct consumer realm, I, I would not say that we had to take you know additional precautions because we had you know really done that when we started the business. Um, but certainly, you know, have to take that stuff seriously. Yeah, you know, you're dealing with you know multiple regulatory bodies, you know, in in you know multiple states. Some are at the federal level, some at the state level. Um, but we have a wonderful general counsel who guides us through this. Obviously, outside counsel as well, and then you have third party regulatory uh, counsel in addition to the general corporate. So, um, you know, maybe more uh, overhead and expense on that side of our business than maybe a traditional software business that's operating in a less regulated space. Um, but you know, as you, you know, understand kind of how you have to operate, it, it becomes kind of just a part of your normal operating cadence as an organization. Yeah, of course. And it sounds like you guys have definitely taken that in stride, um, and, and done the groundwork up front. Like you said, even if it's additional overhead, additional costs, it's definitely worth avoiding, uh, some of the, some of the headlines we see from some, some folks trying to disrupt the financial services ecosystem. Uh, in the past, yeah, and where, so. we've seen, where we've seen more kind of issues there, I think is is really in like the lending space is where you know regulators really like to keep a close eye, particularly in the, the lower income lending space, where you can see synthetic rates on some products being you know very very high. So I think there's some outstanding uh, regulatory ambiguity around those those products. We, we we don't offer any lending products, so I think the you know the the products with the most ambiguity, you know, are not on our uh, current offering or our roadmap. So, we, um, you know, we've been the beneficiary of not having to kind of dive into that. You mentioned uh, kind of the the launch of your direct consumer um, product being, I guess, coincidentally or, or fortuitously timed with kind of the announcement of the shutdown of Mint by Intuit. I guess would be helpful to understand. You know, since that announcement, there's been a lot of press around the difficulties of approaching kind of the mass market with financial services. Will be helpful to understand kind of your perspective on that and how you think that Origins' approach is different um, and differentiated from you know the mints of the world um, and, and what kind of sets sets you all apart going into the future. Mint is an interesting one, and I think that you know people have kind of called this called out what I'm about to say, but what they've said is, look, you know, let me take a step back. Managing money is very scary. It's intimidating. That's why we exist as a business to not necessarily make that easier, but to just take it off your mind. Know that we're doing it for you so that you don't have to worry about it and, and we're helping you do the right things. If you try to create a product that makes people think about money more frequently, you're going to reduce the total addressable market of that product if it is not a mandatory product. And that is the or scaling constraint that exists with a pure budgeting platform. The reality is some people, and by some I mean a lot of people, just don't want to think about it because it's intimidating and it's really scary uh, to look at that bank account and say, I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet. I don't know how I'm going to pay rent. Uh, and so what ends up happening is you kind of you know build those types of products for like super users where they're like really on top of it. They're financially motivated. They want to track every single thing. Uh, and so I think there's probably a ceiling in terms of like, you know, how big a business, you know, you could build domestically, you know, with just that product. And I think that that's why you've seen, you know, venture capital investing, um, you know, not be as abundant for those types of products as opposed to products that are, you know, mandatory in nature. And so like, you know, mandatory may be the wrong word, but like next to mandatory. So like having a bank account as an example, it's not mandatory, but like every single person, like you need a place where your money is going to go, of course. 
So like bank, bank, banking products have like amassed huge amounts of money. Loans, like not mandatory, but like everyone's gonna take a loan out at some point. You wanna buy a car, a house, whatever. Um, so that that's one scaling and trade. And so when we think about that, it's like, great, that's a big part of what we wanna do because we wanna help our users understand cash flow because we can provide insights to them around improving the credit score or you know getting access to lower lower cost credit or thinking about how to plan for buying a home. But you really need to have the products that people need in order to build you know a big financial services company. And I think that that's really what the crux of the you know issue with like a mint or budgeting type product is. And so you get around that by having things that people need. So people need to file their taxes. Uh, you know, similar to a bank account, like you don't need to invest, but people should invest and, and many, many do invest. Uh, creating a trust or a will, another really important thing that people should do. Buying insurance, same thing. If you want to drive your car or if you have a mortgage in your home, you're going to have to buy insurance. So layering those in is how you get to the huge TAMs and financial services. And that's how we ultimately, you know, think about uh, TAM expansion and building, you know, a multi-billion dollar revenue business, you know, uh, over the course of time. That's that's helpful perspective. I think it, it definitely resonates. The there's some I guess friction in terms of budgeting or estate planning, thinking about death, those sorts of things. So having a, a broad suite of services to be able to to meet people where they are and have the conversations that they're willing to have definitely definitely makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think it's like why why like when you look like an easy like an easy way to another example of this is like insurance products. So. Um, like what, like let's look at, look at like commercial general liability or renters insurance, like good examples of this. People, you know, are not buying them necessarily, particularly on the renter side, because like they're really excited about renters insurance. They buy it because they're signing a lease that mandates the purchase of renters insurance, or if they're moving into a commercial space that, that requires commercial general liability insurance. And so, you know, that moment of purchase is, is a really critical time when you see huge upticks in those markets. And that's obviously driving the mandate for those. But I think that that's the difference. Like those are two extreme sides of that example. Like one is purely discretionary and the other is purely mandatory. And so you need to have a blend of those products in your compound product in order to like unlock the TAM. Makes sense. I guess it would be helpful before we pivot away from origin to just get an understanding of your fundraising journey over time You've raised over $70 million to date. I guess, how have you approached fundraising in the past? And based on your experience, do you have any advice for founders as they look to raise capital and, and build their businesses? Yeah. You know, I think like fundraising is, you know, uh, you, a founder should always be, uh, you know, opportunistic when, when they want to raise money. And, and that will ultimately shorten the amount of time that you're in market raising money. And it also increased the odds of success of raising money. So, you know, you, you can kind of have this like checklist of things when you're going to raise money, at, you know, that you go through. Um, and like, if you have all of those things, like you will raise money very, very quickly. And if like you're missing two of them, like maybe it'll take, you know, a couple of months. And then if you're missing like three or four, like you probably just won't raise money ever. And so that's kind of like my, you know, very simple mental model. And I've, you know, over the last 10 years and hundreds of, of meetings with VCs. So you kind of get a feel for like, okay, like I'm coming to this meeting with like, six of eight really important things. Like, I don't know how this is going. Like from my experience, I've certainly come in with like four of eight and it's not fruitful. It's a big waste of time. And so I, I always like to think about fundraising from a position of like, what's going to bring us into this meeting and really get an investor excited about partnering with us to build a really big company. Um, and at different phases of the company, there's different things that they're going to be, you know, looking for that are those like check the box things in their mind that are like, great, like this, 
makes me feel comfortable and I'm excited about like the vision here. And like, it's obviously when you start, it's more vision. And then as you get bigger, it's just more, more numbers and metrics. Um, so, you know, my, my recommendation is to always like wait until you feel like you have as many of those cards turned over as possible for the investors just to make their job really, really easy. And that will result in you kind of picking your investors versus, you know, really having to kind of go like scrape the bottom of the barrel. And I've, you know, I've certainly experienced both of those things. So that's how we've kind of run our process here at Origin saying like, great, like we just flipped over this card that shows really great growth opportunity or really great product or really great customer feedback. Like this is a good time to go engage the market because we need capital and to go lean into what we've uncovered. Um, I think the mistake that I see a lot of founders take is that they get excited about just like getting out there and talking to VCs and they do it when they're a little bit too early and haven't flipped over the cards. And um, yeah, that just results in like really extended fundraising timeframes. I say all of that without having fundraised in the last 18 months. I think that the market has changed like significant, significantly would be the wrong word because it would just understate the change by an order of magnitude. It's it's a totally different ball game right now. Um, you know, if you don't have a path to profitability after the Series A, probably not going to fundraise at all. You know, it's just like not going to happen. The market, you know, you can look at public market costs. But the market is incredibly unforgiving for companies that are burning tremendous amounts of capital right now. So, um, yeah, I think what we're seeing is just a lot of companies deferring that fundraise as long as possible until two things happen. One is the business fundamentals improve, or the market comes back to support. You know, a more traditional venture environment. Yeah, I haven't looked at it this week, but if you look at like the BVP Emerging Cloud Index, that's probably like your best proxy for you know value and where you think you know a company after the Series A or B is going to trade. You know, I think we're trading like the the top quartiles at like you know six times forward uh, revenue right now. Uh, that's like reverting to like south of like the five year average pre twenty nineteen. Um, so. I think it's just really tough to like make venture work at, at the growth stage when you tr when public companies trade at those levels. I think when you get up to like the 8, 10, 12 range, that's where you can start to say like, okay, cool. Like you can see how a public company can be built at 100 million of top line. Like that, that all makes sense. And Greece will come back into the system. So I, I think that that's a good kind of proxy to look at when you're looking at like the health of growth stage markets and where, um, you know, capital, when it will, capital will start to be deployed. All that to say, all the all the money has not all the money. A lot of money has moved earlier in the in the stack. So you're just, I, I think that seed stage company and, and even Series A to some extent is is pretty insulated from all of this. Um, for the reason that I like started off the call with, like if you're starting your business, like it's going to work or it's not. Probably not due to like the macro 2023 or 2024. So investors are like, okay, cool, let's go. You know, continue to fund you know these businesses right now who have longer time horizons to to be to hitting the success numbers. I guess before pivoting to the to the industry more broadly, it'd be helpful to maybe I guess pull on a thread you mentioned there. Sometimes having to go into meetings with four out of eight kind of boxes checked. Um, obviously, you know we discussed earlier of the the difficulty um, of actually the blogging and tackling of running a business versus what you see in the press. Any insights or advice, um, kind of as you've gone through the journey at at Origin or at Indio, um, in some of those more difficult situations you might share with 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 others going through similar situations yeah totally i mean i if you have four of a check just don't take the meeting <clears throat> you know it just it's just gonna it, it's it's gonna be a waste of time so instead of spending the three months trying to fundraise with four of eight boxes checked spend the three months trying to improve your business so you can get five or six boxes checked because then you'll compress your your fundraising time frame to like weeks instead of like never happening 
And I think what people do is they spend too much time with four of eight boxes checked trying to raise funds when if they actually just took that same time and energy on and put it into the business, they could get to six, seven, eight boxes checked in the same amount of time. And then and then fundraising would happen like very, very quickly. So that's that's like the mistake that I see happen uh, most frequently. Gotcha. And I guess in terms of kind of making that decision um, or it, when you're kind of in that seat, uh, evaluating that, it might be difficult to kind of tell yourself, hey, no, let's wait a little bit when, when you're coming up against kind of uh, the end of your runway and, and that sort of thing. I guess, how do you think about um, you know, making that sober-minded decision and what is likely a, a rather stressful time. Yeah, I mean, um, I have the same answer. You know, I, I don't think that going into fundraising, if you, if your business is not ready, the fact that you have less runway, like it's it's not running harder at that problem is not going to you know solve your issue. Um, I think that you're 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 always better off focusing on the business and that will ultimately do a more attractive uh, investment. Look, you may have to reduce the size of the company. Like every single, you know, every single 90, 98% of businesses in the past 24 months have taken a hard look at Headtown and said, where can we reduce costs? Um, you know, you're gonna have to, you know, that, that's how you're gonna have to do it. Um, you know, until you start checking the boxes. You started to touch on the the market a, a little bit and, and how things have in the fundraising market have changed. Um, I guess it might be helpful to get an understanding of how you think um, the broader kind of fintech ecosystem and industry has changed overall. Um, maybe to start, what are some of the more interesting developments you've seen over the past you know twelve to eighteen months uh, in, in the fintech industry? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm like very singularly focused on you know, in our market. So that's where I spend most of my time. But I, I think there's really two things that I've seen in our market that I think are really interesting. So I think that um, the AI applications in personal finance are going to completely change the industry, like entirely. I think you very quickly are accelerating to a place where the justification for a 1% advisory fee from an investment manager becomes really tough to justify where um, you can get into this place where you take kind of the core robo concept, which is traditionally really looking only at investment management, and you can apply that to an entire individual's personal financial uh, picture. And you can really bring tremendous advice across the variety of products like at, at an incredibly low cost. Yeah, you're talking you know, a few bucks a month to, to do that instead of paying you know thousands of dollars annually. So I, I am convinced that that the the personal finance market will change very quickly over the next few years, really as you know AI continues to improve and can displace humans in terms of providing you know services and advice around financial decisions. And you know we're doing a lot of work right there there right now. I think compound products are going to become much, much more commonplace in the personal financial industry as you know the value of aggregating your data in one experience increases. And that will increase as as AI comes, you know, becomes more prevalent. Because if you know, if I'm just, it doesn't make sense to look at things in silos when you know you have this, you know, AI layer. As an example, like if I'm just looking at your investments, a human advisor would never just look at your investments. They're going to want to know where do you want to live, how many kids do you have, how much are you earning, what benefits do you have, like everything, your tax and estate planning. So they bring all that in, and they're looking at all of it, you know, themselves. That's how the software will work as well, because when you can see everything in one place, you can help the user 
make decisions on should I pay down debt? Should I contribute to a 401k? Should I be putting into an IRA or taxable account? All of these things. So a compound product really lends itself well to an AI layer that can guide. So that that will happen, um, you know, I think uh, quite quickly. Um, and then I think that you're seeing kind of a move away from just like the commoditized kind of like layers on top of banking products. Like that's been something that has occurred, you know, where you're just seeing real challenge for companies that are saying, cool, I'm just going to put lipstick on infrastructure and, um, you know, kind of try to go get interchange dollars. So, um, you know, I don't know if that's good or bad, but I think that you'll see more companies kind of have to go deeper into user problems that are being solved, which I think is like a net good thing for, uh, you know, personal finance consumers uh, in the space. Um, and then it'll be really interesting to see how, you know, vertical SaaS players leverage fi- you know, uh, financial insurance as well. Kind of going back to my Indio days, I think that there's going to be continue to be a movement of, you know, financial providers into you know, more uh, vertical SaaS type of players that traditionally might not sit there. And that'll be a really interesting kind of evolution of those vertical SaaS products. I think that's your first point around kind of the fee compression that you might see in wealth management um, as opposed to investment management is is really interesting because obviously the, the trend in investment management over the past few decades has been just kind of that general fee compression, but wealth managers have had that resiliency and have traded at a premium because of that, but how does AI and and the ability to to get that more holistic view um, without the need for a high cost individual um, impact those valuations? That's definitely really interesting. Yeah. The thing that I always wonder about is how much of wealth management and that fee that you're paying is for psychological support. And I, I mean that truly, right? Like you're, you're calling this into, you, a lot of people know the right thing to do. And the right thing to do is to not time the market and to invest through through troughs and you know, stay invested. But your mind plays tricks on you. You know, when markets pull back and even though you know that it's the right thing to do, oftentimes the value of that trusted resource is saying, Trevor, like market's down 15%, like that's okay. This is gonna happen five more times in your lifetime. Like get comfortable with that, that type of thing. So I do, I do always think that there's a place for that human in the loop. But I think that you know, robos, if you look at them, I think fell short because of the va- the value of the human today is so much greater than the value of just advice on you know your investment portfolio. But as the delta between those value props compresses, as a software can give you advice on a multitude of products, I think that that C will have to come down because the number of users who get comfortable with that will increase in kind. So that's what I think will happen. But I do think, you know, at least for the next few years or five years until people get really comfortable with getting advice from software, that that, that, that will occur. And then who knows? I, I, you know, I, don't know, I don't know enough about the psychology there, but I think there's always value of getting on the phone with the trusted resource, or at least, at least today there is. And I guess just one, one final note uh, on the market, I guess, what, what excites you most kind of looking to the future, whether it's 2024 or beyond um, in, in your market or uh, in, in the fintech market more broadly? Yeah, I mean, for us, it, I think it's um, it's delivering on like the promise of an all-in-one platform. I think you know, there's probably 20 companies that kind of say oh, they're all-in-one, you know, wealth management or personal finance. I, I don't really think anyone does it today. Uh, and and for us, you know, 2023 and kind of coming into the D2C world and putting a lot more capital behind marketing was a big move for us. You know, we'll continue to deliver on that over the next year. But I'm really excited to to bring this to to market on the D2C side with a lot more energy, which I think will help our B2B and B2C business. So 
personally really excited about that. I think we're solving, you know, what is the biggest problem in, in mass market wealth management. So I think we can have a huge, huge impact on folks in that space, which is, you know, 35 million households. So that's what we're really excited about. And that's really where I'm focused right now. And, um, you know, next year will be a big year for us. All right, Matt. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on the Wharton FinTech podcast. It's been a great conversation. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and give us a follow on social media. We appreciate the support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There, you'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafa Ostaria. And until next time, this is your host, Trevor Prince.